It was the third time we had seen him since the miracle, since he rose from the dead. We had been out fishing all night, but nothing was biting. Just as dawn was breaking, we heard someone call out from the beach. We couldn't see who it was. He asked us if we caught any fish, and we said no. Then he told us to throw our net over on the other side of the boat. So we did. And when we tried to pull the net back into the boat, we couldn't. It was too heavy with fish. John looked toward the beach. It's the Lord, he said. I jumped into the water and swam for it. You know me, the the boat was too slow. When I made it to the shore, I saw that Jesus was cooking some fish over a fire. He asked for more fish from our catch, so I went back and dragged the net up the beach. We sat down and ate around the fire. It was almost like nothing had changed. Almost. But I knew there was a difference. I didn't deserve to be there. When we had finished eating, Jesus turned and looked at me and he said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Oh, yes, Lord. You, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord. You, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why was he doing this? He had asked me if I loved him once already. Then he asked me a second time. And now he was asking me a third time. Was he trying to humiliate me? Well, if he was, I guess I deserved it. That's true. I was a coward. I had betrayed him, as he had known I would. A girl, a little girl asked me, You are not one of his disciples, are you? And I had said, No, I'm not. And when a second person asked me, I denied knowing him again. And then a third time, a third time, Lord, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Simon Peter, feed my sheep. Between last Sunday and today, every one of us has faced temptations. And in one way or another, all of us have failed. 
Our point of failure might relate to greed or anger or gossip. It might be swearing or gluttony or lying. It might be lust or stealing or pride or laziness or cheating. It might be a lack of compassion for someone in need. It might be that we spoke a harsh word to someone out of anger or frustration. It might be that we are hanging on to, we're keeping hold of a record of the wrongs that people have done against us. It might be that we are doubting God's goodness. That we can't quite, we don't really feel like we can trust God's faithfulness. It's hard to say exactly what it is, but it's something. And often the guilt that accompanies our sin causes us to to wonder about how God really feels about us. The 21st chapter of John's gospel only makes sense if you set it in the context of chapters 13 and 18 of John's gospel. In chapter 13, Jesus is meeting with his disciples at night. He is arrested. And and as he's sharing with them, he warns them that things are going to get rough. And they're going to be pushed. And they need to be careful. And Peter stands up and says, well, Jesus, I don't know about these guys. They are kind of weak. I'll go to the death for you. And you can almost see a little smile on Jesus' lips. He says, Peter, Peter, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. When you move ahead to chapter 18, Peter does exactly that. He denies Jesus three times, swearing that he doesn't even know the man. And Matthew tells us that when the rooster crows and the weight of all that Peter has just done comes down upon him, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. I wonder if John added the 21st chapter of his gospel in order to address this very concern that we wrestle with. This sense of how does God feel about us in our sin. Chapter 20 ends as though John is finished. It says, beginning of verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. It sounds like a conclusion. And it's almost as if John says, wait a minute, there's, there's one more story that I need to tell. There's one more event that, that you need to understand because it is so common and so necessary to your lives. There's one more word that God wants me to proclaim, and it's a word of hope. And as people who struggle with sin, hope is a word that all of us need to hear And it is a word that is embedded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, despite the excitement of that first Easter morning, 
you know Peter's sin is lurking in the back of his mind. We know that. We, we've done things that we, we feel like the best solution is denial. Let's just put that one out of our minds. And as hard as we try, it keeps popping back in. Somebody says something, you see something, you hear something, you read something, and boom, there it is. Sometimes all it takes is just a moment of silence, and there it is. And we want to forget it and act like it never happened. But denial is a false hope. And Jesus wants to give us real hope. Jesus knows that unresolved sin eats away at us. It undermines our confidence. It nags at us. You know, we're always wondering, when is the other shoe going to drop? Unresolved sin paralyzes us and chains us. And Jesus doesn't want us to live like that. So it's painful and sometimes as embarrassing as it can be to have our sin confronted. Jesus does that because it's the only path to complete and full healing and freedom from our sin. Because freedom is the result of forgiveness, not denial. And so Jesus encounters Peter on this shore, helping him understand the stages of his restoration. Now, you've you probably experienced the power of, of, of smell as a memory trigger. You know, you, people who know these things tell us that it might well be the strongest memory trigger. And I, and I know that's true. Every time, every time I smell a cigar burning, I think back to when I was in high school and I worked in a meatpacking plant. And the guy who owned this small family uh, meatpacking plant loved to smoke cigars. He loved to chew on the cigars, and that made them not smell so good either, I don't think. But, you know, it, it was not a real pleasant aroma, but it did have its benefits. Because when you couldn't see him coming and you couldn't hear him coming, you could always smell him coming. So, not that this ever happened to me, but some people were kind of being lazy some days and standing around, you know, leaning on something. Um, You could tell when he was coming because you could smell it. And as soon as that aroma of cigar wafted its way around a corner, you got busy or at least looked like you were being busy. And he loved to catch us because one of his favorite things was to see someone standing like this and he'd say, hey, get your hands out of my pockets. And, you know, he, he loved that phrase and we heard it often. But, you know, it's interesting because when I see a side of beef, that doesn't necessarily trigger my memory. And when I, when I see boxes of hamburgers that I loaded on the trucks, that doesn't necessarily either. But that smell of cigars always takes me back. It's interesting to me in light of that, that there's only, there are only two times in all of the scriptures where the, words, the word charcoal fire is used. During Jesus' trial, Peter stands outside with the other people warming themselves, he says, around a charcoal fire. And with, with the aroma of that fire in his nostrils, Peter denies Jesus. And then a few days later, when they come in from fishing and Peter rushes into the shore, Jesus is there with a fire cooking some fish, 
And all of a sudden, the aroma of that charcoal fire hits him. And he remembers. It's also not a coincidence that Peter denies Jesus three times. And three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? It's like a dagger into Peter's soul. And after the third time, John tells us that Peter is hurt that Jesus asked him three times. It's almost as though Jesus is turning the knife. And you think the fire and the questions, it kind of seemed like Jesus is being cruel to Peter. I mean, is Jesus so upset with Peter that all he really wants to do is rub his face in what he's done? No. It's because Jesus understands that freedom from guilt and shame are not the results of denial. They're the results of facing the truth. As difficult as that truth may be. Jesus is actually doing the most loving thing in the world with Peter. It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, I know what you did and I know how sorry you are for what you did. And I don't want you to live with that guilt and shame any longer. I don't want you to wonder if I've forgiven you or if I'm going to hold this against you for the rest of your life. I've got big plans for you, Peter. But until this gets settled, you are incapable of moving forward with me because until this gets settled, you're never going to trust me. You're never going to believe that I've really forgiven you and we're past it. And until we are convinced that Jesus knows our sin and acknowledges our sin, we will always wonder if he really forgives our sin. Maybe he just doesn't realize what we did. And hope for us becomes just an elusive dream. I think it breaks God's heart to have to put us through this, but it's the only way to get to hope. Because we live in fear and anxiety and we're so far short of God's plan for us because we want to believe that denying our sin is better than confronting our sin. And I understand that. I mean, who wants to feel the pain and the agony of what we've done again? Who wants to be reminded that we're not perfect and that we can do some pretty shameful things? If given a choice, I suspect every one of us would choose secrecy over openness. And yet there is freedom in being open. I'll always remember July 4th, 1969. The church where my dad was the pastor had a tradition of having a big picnic that day. And we were getting everything ready when the phone rang. I didn't know what the call was about, but I could tell it was serious. I found out later some of the details. A few months before... A gas station near where we lived had been robbed and the owner had been murdered. And a few days after that event, there was an artist sketch in the local newspaper. And I remember my parents saying, you know, that kind of looks like one of the guy, a son of one of the families in the church. On that July 4th morning, they discovered that they were right. He and some friends had gotten high, gotten drunk, decided they wanted some money, went to rob this gas station. I think they got like $17. And he killed the owner. And on that morning, on that Independence Day morning, 
he was arrested and he confessed to the whole thing. The family asked my dad if he would go to visit him, which he was, he was happy to do. And when he went in and he sat down with this young man, he said, I'll, I'll never forget the first thing he said to me. He said, I am so glad this is over. I have been living in hell for the last few months. Every time I see a police officer, I'm thinking he's going to know who I am. Every time somebody asks me something personal, I feel so guilty. Every day has been a living hell. And he says, as crazy as it may sound, and even though, even though I'm locked up in this jail and my future looks pretty grim, I actually feel relieved. And I actually feel kind of free. And it was the beginning point of his life transformation. It's really what what John is telling us in his first letter when he says, if we say that that we have no, we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So James is saying, when he writes, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. But Jesus is not just confronting our sinful behavior. He's always moving us toward the root cause of our sin. And for Peter, it is skewed priorities. And I suspect that's usually the case for us. I have a feeling that we might tend to think there are some things that we understand really need to be confessed, acknowledged, and dealt with. These are things that are big. Murder. Denying Jesus. You know, some of those kinds of things, yeah, we, we definitely need to handle those things. But the truth is, we need to confess all of the things. Because even the small things that we think are somewhat innocuous, yeah, I got a little bit angry, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that, yeah, I, I, I was just gossip. Whatever the case may be, if we let those things go, they begin slowly but surely to build a barrier between us and God. And they, they cause us to think that, well, maybe confession isn't all that big of a deal. And they remind us that the real issue is not so much the sin we commit as it is what's going on in our hearts. And that comes back to the priority of our hearts. And so Jesus asked Peter, who do you love? Do you love me, Peter? Do you really love me? This, uh, what he says, do you love me more than these? And the word these is very ambiguous. So there are a lot of theories about what exactly Jesus means by these. The two prominent, most prominent theories are that he means these guys who are there with him fishing, his close friends. And we know that relationships can be a great gift from God, but they can also become so important to us that they become more important than God. And when that happens, our priorities are out of whack. And it's going to lead us to behavior that's, that's not what is pleasing to God. But there's also a sense that he's saying, do you love me more than this fishing equipment that's lying here on the shore? The nets, 
and the fish. Do you love me more than these things? And again, our work is a gift of God. But like relationships, if it gets in the way of God, if it becomes more important to us, if it becomes our identity instead of Jesus, then we're in the wrong place. And what we accomplish in this life and the important people in our lives are truly a gift of God. But it's always a temptation to let those things get in the way of Jesus. And it's a concern of Jesus because our priorities are are about moving us in the right direction. And if we're moving in the right direction toward Jesus, then eventually we will place our hope if we're, if we're moving away from Jesus, we'll place our hope in something other than Jesus. And then there is no hope because Jesus is the only hope. But the hope of the resurrected Christ here is really less about questions than about commands. For we who wrestle with sin against God and others, is there anything more wonderful to hear then not just you're forgiven, but I have plans for your life and I want to use you in my kingdom. In our skewed view of life, we tend to believe that while we can be forgiven for anything and everything, some things maybe might just be too much for God. Maybe he can't really restore that or do anything about that. And yet here is Jesus telling his disciple who rejected him in every possible way, Peter, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, Feed my sheep. When you have to wonder, does Jesus really understand what he's doing here? You want to say to him, wait a minute, let me get this straight. So, so the guy who, when life got toughest, denied you, denied even knowing you, swore that he'd never met you, this is the guy you're entrusting the kingdom to? Really? Seriously? Does that seem like a good plan, Jesus? Yeah. And the truth is, if we're ever going to experience the hope of the resurrected Christ in our lives, we're going to have to come to see that Jesus is far more generous with grace than any of us will ever dream of being. We're going to have to come to grips with the truth that Jesus exists to restore what is broken. And to mend what is torn. And to give hope to people that you and I have a tendency to give up on. Including ourselves. Now we might tend to say, well, come on Jesus, have a little discretion, right? And discretion is a good thing. But our problem is usually not a lack of discretion. Our problem is a lack of grace. I have never yet come across a situation where... Human beings are offering more grace to fallen, broken people than Jesus is. I've never yet come across a situation where human beings are offering more grace to fallen, broken people than Jesus is. We tend to say, all right, let's see how serious you are. Let's, let's see some remorse. And then maybe we'll give you a second chance. 
And God says, if you'll let me deal with that sin, I'm going to give you chance after chance after chance and let my grace get you to a place where you can actually influence people for the kingdom once again. Because we worship a God who uses broken things like you and me. John 21 is shouting at us, though you've failed, you are valuable and significant to God. There is always hope. The heart of the gospel, the heart of the cross, the heart of the resurrection is that God never gives up on any of us. Never. Peter's encounter with Jesus reveals that in the power and grace of the risen Christ, failures are redeemed, disappointments are made new, relationships and lives that are broken are restored and healed. And I don't know what guilt you may be feeling this morning. But I do know this, the risen Christ offers grace to you. The risen Christ wants more than anything to restore you. The risen Christ is always offering you hope. And the only question facing us is will we receive it? Will we embrace it? Will we live it in his grace? Heavenly Father, sometimes it's hard for us to believe that you are as gracious and merciful as you are. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. As we come to you to find forgiveness and hope through Christ. Amen.